The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So I do invite you to open to Hosea 5 if you haven't done so already. The first time that I attempted to flirt with my now wife, Holly, uh, she thought that I was a two-timing jerk. Uh, we... We had ended up in the same group of friends, all out to eat at the same restaurant after a football game. And from her perspective, it looked like I was on a date with another girl, which is technically true. Holly thought she was my girlfriend, and and, and so seen through that narrow lens, that specific situation uh, made all of my actions look like I was a total tool. The problem was that Holly did not have a full picture of what was actually going on that evening. She needed a wider lens uh, through which she could see everything that was happening. Only later would a mutual friend of ours actually explain to her that the girl that I was with, I was not dating. I had dated her in the past. She was the only girl that I had dated that after we broke up, we actually remained really close friends. And the reason I was out with her that evening was as a favor. It was totally just as friends. She didn't want to go to this thing alone. So I was like, hey, okay, that's cool. I'll go with you. We were not an item at all. And only once Holly was given this wider lens through which to see the narrow situation could she actually make sense of my actions and the intentions of my my heart. I believe that we encounter a similar situation when we read passages about the wrath of God in the book of Hosea. Really not just Hosea, in the whole of the Bible. The whole of the Bible is filled with passages about judgment and wrath. And Hosea particularly, about 95% of this book, I'm making up statistics, but that's pretty close, is nothing but judgment and, and wrath. Hosea contains passage after passage about the wrath of God being poured out in judgment. And when, when we isolate these passages and look at them through a narrow lens, we can even actually end up getting a more skewed picture of God than Holly had gotten of me. Like if we isolate these passages, we can begin, we, we, we can begin to think that God is, is bloodthirsty. He's full of rage. He's, he's out of control. How could we possibly believe then and trust such a God? As a matter of fact, when I talk with unbelievers, this is one of the number one objections they raise. Almost always the first one that they raise to faith. And immediately we'll begin, I don't know if you've experienced this, but they'll immediately begin to point to images of biblical judgment, whether it's the flood from Genesis 6, or whether it's the conquest of the land of Canaan and Joshua, or whether it's hell itself. They'll point to these biblical images of judgment and say, these things, the wrath of God actually drives me away from faith. Not towards it. The problem isn't just for those who don't know the Lord. I encounter this problem with Christians as well. They too, probably you as well, struggle with passages about God's wrath. And so typically we just try to avoid them. Unfortunately, that can lead to just as horribly skewed of a version of God as if we isolate on them. People will look at these passages, Christians will look at these passages, and they'll say, these, these things, they're hard for me because they fill me with doubt about God's goodness. Doubt about his love. They, they'll say it fills them with despair. How, how could they ever share this God with others as if it is good news? God's wrath drives away their hope. Fills them with doubt and despair. And here, here's the deal, Shades. The reason... The wrath of God does this. For both the lost and for Christians, the reason that it seemingly drives people away from faith, drives them away from hope, the reason it does that is because what we read about God's wrath doesn't seem to fit with what we read about his love. I mean, Scripture tells us that God is love. It's 1 John 5. God is love. How does wrath square with that? Like it can't. Can it? And so, the wrath of God seemingly destroys faith, hope, 
and love. It seems to be anything but good news. But could, could it be, Shades, that we need a wider lens? Could it be, could there be a wider lens that would help us bring these narrow situations into focus? A wider lens through which all of God's actions, even his wrath, would make more sense. Where we could see his motivation, we could see the intentions of his heart. I believe that Hosea gives us that lens. We began this series several weeks ago just walking through chapters 1 through 3 and seeing God use the personal life of Hosea, his marriage to an unfaithful wife named Gomer, God used that as a lens. As a lens through which his people could look and see his own relationship, God's own relationship with his people. That he was the faithful husband, they were the unfaithful wife, going idolatrously after all sorts of other gods, other lovers. And through the story of Hosea going after his wife who found herself enslaved by the lovers she sought to set her free. Hosea goes after her, buys her back, redeems her, and God shows his people what he will do for them. We got this lens of God, Gomer, and the gospel. And that's the lens through which we're meant to read the rest of this book, including every single passage that has to do with the wrath of God. I argued for you that this is the lens through which we read the Bible. What it tells us about God and who he is. And what that then for, therefore shows us about ourselves, our, the Gomers, and what we're like. And what it reveals to us about the gospel, the only thing that can hold God and Gomer together. This is the lens through which we see our, our lives. It's the lens that brings everything else into focus. And it does that for us in the book of Hosea, including the wrath of God. Which is what Hosea chapter 5 is all about. Let's not shy away from it this morning. Let's not, let's not avoid it. You get a skewed picture of God. Let's look directly at the wrath of God in Hosea 5 and let's see it through the lens of God, Gomer, and the gospel. Because I believe that what we will see is that the wrath of God does not actually destroy faith, hope, and love. It brings them into full focus. I believe that what we will see is that the wrath of God is actually part of the good news of the gospel. I want you to see that shade. Like, like, please, hear my pastoral heart right here. This is, this is why I do what I do. This is why I get up here week after week. This is why I preach and proclaim this word. I, I want you to see why this is good. I never want to take anything from Scripture, throw it at you, and say, believe it because it's in the Bible. Done. Wrath of God in the Bible, believe it, you got to, like it or not, sorry. No, I want you to see why it's good. God is good and everything about him is good, including his wrath. I want, I want us to see the beauty, the full-orbed beauty of who he is. I sat with a father in our congregation this past week as he wept tears, talking to me about his desire for his children to see the beauty of the gospel. And how he's worried they won't be able to do that in our current cultural climate that takes different pieces of our faith and skews them to look like bigotry. He wept. I want him to see not just that this is something that Scripture says, but that it's beautiful and it's good. That's what I, that's what I want you to say. I, I want you to know what to do with these passages about the, the wrath of God. I don't want you to... It, them. I want you to know how to talk with others about them, how to process them. I want you to see how they are so practical. The wrath of God is practical to your day-to-day -day life. I want you to see that. I'm not saying that this is fun and light. It's not. No, these are heavy, hard realities, but they're good. Parents, you should know about things that are heavy and hard, but good. My goal, always, 
is for us to see why everything in Scripture is good, even God's wrath. It's part of the good news of the gospel, and I believe Hosea 5 helps us to see that. So let's see it together, beginning in verse 8. Hosea 5 and verse 8. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm, Beth-Avon. We follow you, O Benjamin. This sounds like a call to arms. It'll work right. Uh, horns, trumpets in ancient Israel were used often to call the people to war. They were used for one other purpose, which was to call the people to worship. That could also be what's going on right here. Hosea the prophet is calling the people to either war or to worship. Why? Well, in order to understand why, we have to do a little bit of review. If you back up and you remember, as we walked through chapter 4 a couple of weeks ago, and even we're going to see the first seven verses of chapter 5, all of chapter 4, first part of chapter 5, God has been speaking harsh words to his people. Kyle Kilo talked to us about that two weeks ago, how we need to hear the harsh word. God's been speaking harsh words because he's been laying out, laying bare, all the ways in which his people have rebelled against him, primarily through idolatry. Idolatry that began with their leaders and then had a domino effect. That's what we begin seeing at the beginning of chapter 5. Go up to verse 1. Chapter 5 and verse 1, you can see this idolatry beginning with the leadership of Israel. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. That's the social leaders, the social elite. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. You've been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor. These are cities where they had set up shrines, priests, the social leaders, the kings. They've led the people into idolatry. Primarily, we've seen worshiping a fertility god known as Baal. Fertility in all the ways you can think about fertility. He offered you, if you worshiped him, he offered to bless you with kids and to bless you with crops. So the leaders are leading the people astray. And this is a domino effect. It doesn't just start with the leadership. Look down at verse 5. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. Remember that God's people are divided right now. The kingdom is divided. You have the northern kingdom of Israel, which is also known as Ephraim. Those are the same thing right here in this text. And you have the southern kingdom known as Judah. And the northern kingdom has been going astray into idolatry, and God says it's going to spread. It's going to spread to the southern kingdom of Judah. They're going to be idolatrous too, and God has seen it all. Look at verse 3. I know Ephraim. I know. I know Ephraim. And Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you've played the whore. Israel is defiled. Like Hosea's unfaithful wife, Israel's gone after other lovers, other gods, and the Lord says, I've seen it all. My holy eyes have seen it all. It's not, it's not hidden from me. This is what he's been doing all throughout chapter 4, through the beginning of chapter 5, laying bare their sin. I've seen it all. And now he says that on account of their sin, his wrath is coming. Look at verse 7. They, it's the people of Israel, have dealt faithlessly with the Lord. For they have borne alien or foreign children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Just like Hosea's unfaithful bride had illegitimate children with her lovers, God says the leaders of Israel have born, have given birth to an illegitimate generation that worships other gods. Gone with other lovers to form this people who are not my people. And the Lord says his wrath is coming. Did you see it at the end of verse 7? It's in that last sentence. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. The new moon was a time of celebration for Baal worshipers. Baal gives us crops. And so at the new moon, we feast, we consume. God says at the new moon, you're going to be consumed. The crops that you would normally feast upon are going to be gone. Famine. I'm going to take the very thing that you think Baal gives you, and I'm going to strip his power bare. Show you that he is powerless. The new moon shall devour them with their fields. This is the moment when Hosea calls the people to war and worship. This is where verse 8 comes. 
sins laid bare. God says, my wrath is coming. And so, Hosea says in verse 8, blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm, beth We follow you, O Benjamin. In other words, if this is a military call, he says, marshal up your troops. The wrath of God is coming. Try to fight against it. Your strength that you've been trusting in, go for it. If this is a call to worship, it's still saying the same thing. Run to the gods whom you have claimed have given you blessing. Cry out to them. See if they can stay the hand of the Lord that is coming. Like these are, these are words of prophetic sarcasm. Isaiah says, blow the trumpet for war or for worship, doesn't matter. You've trusted in your own might, march all your own might out. You've trusted in Baal, cry out to him with all you've got. The things you've trusted in have no power to save. God's wrath is certain. That's what we see in verses 9 through 12. Look at it, it says, Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment. Among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure, what is certain, what cannot be thwarted. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them, I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. You see what God is saying right here? He said, Judah's leaders are corrupt. He says, Judah's leaders, they're like petty thieves who move boundary markers in order to grab other people's land. There's injustice, in other words, running rampant. He looks at Ephraim at the northern kingdom. He says they've been determined to go after the filth of idolatry. There's idolatry that fills the land. Injustice and idolatry pollute the land. And so God says, I'm going to wash it clean. How? He uses these words, desolation, punishment, wrath, oppression, crushing judgment. Like those are his words. Those are mine. Those are the words that God uses to describe what's coming. And the images that he uses are even more vivid than that. God describes himself as being like a moth to Ephraim. A better translation of the Hebrew right there is probably maggot in an open wound. Like this is how God is describing himself. A maggot in the wound of Ephraim, like dry rot or gangrene to the house of Israel. Like the, the image he is giving them, the basic picture is of somebody who is wounded and their wounds are festering in the most horrible of, of manners. God is making the wound of idolatry and injustice fester. Why? Why? I think that the image, there's one more image here that God gave us of his wrath. It's in verse 10. And I think that it gives us a hint of why he's doing what he's doing. Verse 10, the princes of Judah have become like those who move the boundary marker. In other words, they're unjust. Upon them, I will pour out my wrath like water. Wrath like water. Why that image? Like I think that anybody familiar with scripture, when you hear the words wrath and water together, that sends your mind to one place. Where? The flood. Like immediately you're thinking Genesis 6 in the story of the flood. Some translators actually prefer to translate this verse, I will pour out my wrath like a flood of water, just to make the connection that much more obvious. It's a clear reference, and so it leads me to ask, what was the point of God's wrath in the flood of Genesis 6? What was his point? Why did he do it? Was it total annihilation? Complete destruction, just get rid of humanity and creation altogether? No, I mean, if that was the point, he kind of like should have avoided the whole ark thing. No, the ultimate point was redemption. The ultimate point was a removal 
of all that was destroying God's good creation and God's people. A removal of sin and death and a reconciliation of creation and humanity to himself. Could, could that be the ultimate point of God's wrath in Hosea 5? Redemption. Like, could the pouring out of God's wrath like water be aimed at the cleansing of his people by cleaning away all that brought sin and death and decay. The leadership, the kings, the priests who've inflicted the wounds of injustice and idolatry of his people, cleansing that, washing it away, could could this potentially always be the ultimate aim of God's wrath? Redemption through removal and reconciliation. Could that always be the aim of of God's rep? Maybe, just maybe, the reason why God is making the wounds of idolatry and injustice fester, maybe he's making them fester so that his people will see their sickness and come back to the only one who can clean and cure them. Maybe his ultimate aim is redemption through the removal of that which afflicts them and reconciliation of them to himself. I'm tipping my hand. Obviously, I believe that's his aim. I think that's where he's going. He is making the wounds of his people fester so that they'll see their sickness and come back to him. Unfortunately, in their stubborn rebellion, they're willing to turn to anyone for healing except the Lord. Look at verse 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, they see it. Like God makes it fester, they notice. Our wealth, our power is draining, our crops are obliterated. We need to be saved. So what will they do? When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But, God says, he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. Exactly. Crops are failing. Wealth and power are are crumbling. This, This is God revealing through His wrath that Baal and all of the other idols are powerless. And yet the people don't repent and return to Him. They go to the great king. This is so humanity, is it not? Like, everything around me crashes and I'll turn to anything to save me except the only one who can. As a matter of fact, the only one who can, I'm more likely to blame him. This is all your fault. They turn to the great. How many great kings do we turn to? To save us. But the point of the passage is going to show us that there is no great king that this world has to offer who can save. People turn to Assyria. Assyria was the dominant world power of the time. There's nobody greater than their king. I mean, this is, this is the top. Like, if you're going to go for a world power that can help you at this time, there's, there's nowhere else to go. This is the top of worldly powers. If he can't help, no one can. And God says, he can't cure you or heal your wound. Why? Because he's not the most powerful. God is God says, I am. And right now, God's power is set against them in wrath until they return to him. And no one can save them from that. Look look at the end of verse 13 again, and let's keep going. But he is not able to cure you or heal your wound for, here's the reason he can't do that, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue 
I will return again to my place, like a lion to its lair. I'll return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. God says, I won't let the king of Assyria save you. And that is a great grace. Do you see that? I won't let the king of Assyria save you. And that's a great grace. Because the king of Assyria can't ultimately save. Like even if he could temporarily cure their need for crops, he can't ultimately save them. He cannot cure the festering wound of their souls that will end in eternal death. Assyria cannot cure them. In fact, God will actually use Assyria to consume them. God says his wrath is coming like a lion who tears and carries away. That's a picture of exile. The people are about to be torn from their land and carried away. Do you know who's going to do that to Ephraim in the year 722 B.C.? Assyria. The very king they sought to bring salvation will be their condemnation. The wrath of God is going to reveal that the greatest king the world has to offer is no savior at all. Hosea is telling this to the people. This is prophecy. He's telling them this is going to happen because he wants them to see that all their options are cut off. But you have no options left. Everywhere you would turn to for salvation outside of God has been cut off from you. And so with no options left, hear the call that Hosea issues in chapter 6 and verse 1. He says, come, let us return to the Lord. Like you've tried your own military might. You've tried Baal. You've tried the stinking great king of Assyria. It all fails. So come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down and He will bind us up. Hosea says the wrath of God is ultimately aimed at redemption. He has torn us that In order that. So here's the reason. Here's the purpose. That he may heal. He's torn us away from everything we trusted in but him. He's removed our corrupt kings, our priests, our leaders. He's led that led us astray towards death and decay. So that he may heal our festering wounds of injustice and idolatry. So that he may reconcile us to himself and we get life in him. God's wrath has been aimed at redemption through removal and reconciliation. It has been aimed at bringing these people to faith. Do you see that? He's torn us that he may heal us. Taken away all of our other options where we could put our faith. So there's nowhere left to run except to the only one who can save. Removal in order to reconcile. This is redemption. His wrath has been aimed at bringing people to faith. Not driving them away from it. Remember when we started, I said this is, this is the objection that I hear from lost people all the time. The wrath of God actually drives them away from it. And what we're seeing in Scripture is that God's wrath is actually aimed at bringing people to faith, not driving them from it. So, so when I talk with people who aren't believers, and they bring this up, they bring up the wrath of God as an objection to faith. This is what I try to show them. That the wrath of God is actually a reason for faith. That its ultimate aim is redemption through removal and reconciliation. I, I, I take them through that one at a time. First, removal. I'll ask a person who doesn't have faith, who's objecting to the wrath of God, I'll ask them, do you believe there's injustice in the world? I have never gotten a no. Everyone says yes. You believe there's injustice in the world? Yes. I ask, do you long for something to do, for something to be done about it? Again, everyone says yes. Everybody around us is saying yes to that question. It's like, all you got to do is turn on the news, and you, the news is basically story after story of our world crying out for somebody to do something. 
Let there be justice somewhere. Even in our own country that is so split and politically divided, it's divided by people who have different views of what justice looks like, and they're both crying out for justice to be done. They have different standards of it, but that's what they want. Somebody do something about what's going on. Fix it. Remove the, the evil. We look, we look at things like the recent terror attacks in New Zealand, at, at, at the mosques in New Zealand, and, and the question that everyone cries out, not just Christians, but is how long? Like how much longer can anybody do anything? And I tell people, this is the aim of the wrath of God. The removal of evil. This isn't an objection to faith. It's meant to lead you to faith. It's the thing you're begging for. It's the thing you're asking to see. Because it is aimed at redemption through removal. Removing all that is evil. When I have that conversation with people, all of a sudden, the wrath of God begins to sound like good news. Until. Until all of those dominoes begin to click and fall into place. And there's this realization of if the wrath of God is aimed at the removal of injustice and evil and brokenness, there's this realization that I too have contributed to the injustice, the evil, and the brokenness in this world. None of us like to think of ourselves as evil. That's because we all like to think of ourselves as better than we actually are. The Bible's pretty honest about who we are. But I think all of us are honest enough to say there are ways in which we have contributed to the brokenness and the injustice of this world. And if the wrath of God is aimed at the removal of that, then I got to be removed too. I'm what Ephesians 2.3 calls a child of wrath by nature. None of us were born into this world as children of God. We were born as children of wrath by nature. We've got to be adopted into his family through Christ. And all of a sudden, when I see all of that, the wrath of God that's aimed at redemption through removal doesn't sound like such good news. Which is why, when I'm having this conversation with people, I tell them, Wrath isn't just aimed at redemption through removal, but second, through reconciliation. I tell people, you, you don't just want to see evil removed, right? You want to see good restored. And so you look for someone who can restore good. You look for a savior. This world looks for a savior, someone who can remove evil and restore the good. And this world offers countless counterfeit saviors that promise to fix all of our injustices in this world and to usher in peace. And none of these saviors can deliver on what they promise. You can run to every single one of them as if they are the great king of Assyria, but none of them can save and heal. No politician can deliver on these promises. No person at all. No drug or substance, no money or power, no sex or euphoria. Nothing has been able to save us from the brokenness of this world, much less the brokenness inside of ourselves. And this is God's grace towards us that he has not allowed anything else to save us so that we will run to the only one who can truly save. It's God's gracious removal of all of our Assyrian kings, all the things we turn to other than him. This is his gracious festering of our wounds that we will turn to the only one who can heal and save us from eternal death and decay, Christ. He's the only Savior. God himself took on flesh. Jesus Christ came to this world, lived a perfect life of justice and peace. He's the only one who never deserved to experience the wrath of God. And yet the wrath of God was unleashed on him like a flood at the cross, poured out completely. He took it up like it was a cup and drank it down to its dregs and slammed it on the table and said, it is finished. It's this is what he's done. He bore all the wrath for all who trust in him. That's the great promise and great declaration of Romans 8 and chapter 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. No wrath. Christ bore it all. No more festering wounds. Because Isaiah 53, 5 says that by his wounds, our wounds are healed. Total reconciliation made possible by the only one worthy of the title, the great king, King Jesus. This is the gospel. 
for gomers like you and me who've gone to all sorts of Assyrian kings and ended up in all sorts of versions of slavery. This is the gospel that reveals the wrath of God is not ultimately is ultimately aimed at redemption through not just removal but also reconciliation. It's meant to lead us to faith. Is, is God's wrath coming into focus through the lens of God, Gomer, and the gospel? Let's, let's bring it into full focus. There is more. The wrath of God is not just meant to lead us to faith, but it's meant to fill us with hope. You didn't think I was going to start out with the wrath of God looks like it destroys faith, hope, and love without us undoing all three of those, right? It's not just meant to lead us to faith. It's also meant to fill us with hope. The wrath of God is not meant to make you doubt God's goodness. It's not meant to make you despair. No, his wrath is actually the guarantee of his goodness because it's his wrath that guarantees he'll remove everything not good. It's the guarantee of his goodness. See this through the lens of God, Gomer, in the gospel. This is the very thing that Hosea did for his wife, Gomer. In chapters 1 through 3, we saw her and her many lovers in which she sought satisfaction actually landed her in slavery. And we saw that Hosea, through redeeming her, through literally buying her back, he removed all of those other lovers from her life. This was his goodness towards her. He removed those who were destroying her. And this is what God aims to do through his wrath. Remove all other lovers that compete for his people's affection. It's what we were told all the way back in Hosea chapter 2 and verse 17. God says about his people, I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. Is this not what God is graciously doing in Hosea 5? Graciously removing the bales from their mouths. You think Baal gives you crops, crops gone. You think Assyria who, worship, who worships Baal as well can say Syria, no. He's graciously removing the bales from their mouths to bring them back to him. He, he pours out his wrath like water to wash the land clean of the bales that are destroying his people and the leaders that are leading them towards such destruction. God aims to remove all that is evil. Every good parent does this. My mother did this in my life. Like on multiple occasions, my mother's wrath removed friends who were leading me towards nothing but death and destruction. I don't know if your mom did this for you. This is what good mamas do. Yeah, you got so much to the point. When I was in high school, I didn't go to many parties. And it wasn't because I wasn't invited to many parties, but when my friends invited me, I would tell them, you don't want me to come because my mama talks to Jesus and he tells her where I've been. <laughs> Mamas talk to Jesus. God in his, God loves his children way more than my mother loved me. And this is the good news of the gospel that the day is coming when he will fully and finally remove all evil, all other lovers that have ever tempted our hearts. That's good news, and it's what we call his wrath. It's our hope. It's my hope that he's going to make all things new. And it's not just a hope that is far off in the future. This is a hope that empowers us right now in the present. Like, Shades, this, this is where I told you that the wrath of God is practical for your day-to-day. -day. This is where the wrath of God becomes so incredibly practical for our everyday lives. Like, knowing, knowing that the day is coming when God will remove all evil. When he will right all wrongs. His wrath will come. That's what his wrath does. It brings justice, rights all wrongs, removes all evil, makes all things new. Knowing that day will come. Hosea 5.9 told us it is sure to come. Hosea 5.13 told us nobody on this earth, not even the great king of Assyria, can stop it. We know that God will make all things new. Jesus promises that in Revelation 21.5. That hope, guaranteed by his wrath, that hope empowers our present right now. How? 
countless ways. Let me give you just three by way of example. It, it empowers us to proclaim. It empowers us to persevere. And it empowers us to demonstrate the impossible, the gospel itself. I'll take you through those one at a time very quickly. This hope that the wrath of God will bring perfect justice, make all things right. This that fills us with hope, it empowers us to proclaim. Romans 1.16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We've just been talking about the fact that this world is looking for hope. For an end to evil and injustice, for an end even to the brokenness that they see inside themselves. Shades, we have the hope. The hope of redemption. The hope that all evil will be removed. The hope that you can be reconciled to God. I'm not ashamed of this gospel. I'm empowered to proclaim it because I know that it's guaranteed. The wrath of God guarantees my hope that He will make all things new. That hope empowers me to proclaim this good news of the gospel. It doesn't just empower us to proclaim. Second example I've got for you, it empowers us to persevere in the present. Romans chapter 8 and verse 18 says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. If you keep reading, you go to Romans 8, and you just keep reading verses 19 through 23, they go on to describe how all of creation is currently groaning under the curse of sin and death. We ourselves groan as we await our hope, the redemption of all creation, the redemption of our bodies, the removal of all things that are evil, the making of all things new. And verse 24 declares, for in this hope we were saved. Like in other words, the, this guaranteed hope that all things will be made new empowers me to persevere day by day through the sufferings of this present time because I know they don't compare with the glory that's coming. It empowers me to live out 2 Corinthians 4.16. I don't lose hearts. Even though my outer self is wasting away, my inner man is being renewed because this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Like this guaranteed hope empowers perseverance in the present. Third and final example I have for you is it empowers us to demonstrate the impossible, the gospel itself. It empowers this hope that God will set all wrongs right bring perfect justice by his wrath, make all things new. This hope it empowers us to demonstrate the impossible, the gospel itself. In the gospel, God has shown me grace. He's forgiven me. He's shown goodness towards me that I do not deserve. He's forgiven me. This hope empowers us to demonstrate that gospel. It empowers us to forgive as we have been forgiven. It empowers us to show grace as we have been shown grace. It empowers us to let go of bitterness, to love our enemies, as Christ talked about, to do good to those who persecute us. This hope empowers all of that, to put on display what the world thinks is impossible. Grace, forgiveness, a letting go of bitterness. How? How does this hope empower that? Because we don't have to worry about whether or not justice will be done. We have a guarantee by the wrath of God that all wrongs will be righted. I don't have to hang on to it. I can let it go and leave it up to Him. Romans 12, verse 19 through 20 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Do you see what Paul is saying? I don't have to try and exact justice on all who have wronged me. And I don't have to be bitter over the lack of justice that's currently being done. That, that's what bitterness and unforgiveness are. They're, they're this deep-seated anger that justice has not been done here. I've been wronged here, and this isn't right. And the only little bit of, of justice I can get in this situation is to withhold the only thing I have, whether or not to forgive you. So I won't. I'll hang on to it. I'll be, I'll be bitter. 
Shades, I have felt the crushing weight of that temptation over this past week. I told you I was gone this past Sunday due to a family emergency. And most of you know, many of you know, I've told you all before, I have a sister who is going through a terrible divorce right now. And, and the crushing weight of wanting to store up nothing but bitterness Anger, resentment, and unforgiveness towards my brother. I felt the pull of that so painfully hard this past week. I could not preach last week. How, how could we ever be empowered to let that go? To to lay it down, to, to, to not only forgive in a situation like that, but to do good to those who have hurt you. This text has been a balm to my soul. You leave it to the wrath of God. You have a promise. You have a hope. All wrongs will be righted. No one gets away with anything. Every sin will bear the full weight of the wrath that it deserves. That will happen in one of two ways. Either at the cross of Christ, a person repents and is hidden in Him, and that does not mean that the wrong they did you or the injustice they did you is swept under the rug. No, it was poured out in full and drank down by the Son of God. Justice is done. Either there, or if they never repent, then they bear it upon their own head. But either way, justice is done. Leave it to the wrath of God. This provides power in your present. I can personally testify. This is providing me power in my present. Setting me free from bitterness and unforgiveness to show the world what the gospel looks like. I can honestly say right now, though it may be through gritted teeth, that I forgive Him. And I pray for God's goodness towards him. And I pray that looks like redemption. You can let it go. Just be set free to demonstrate the impossible, demonstrate gospel grace. The wrath of God does not destroy our hope and make us doubt God's goodness, it's actually the guarantee that He will redeem all things through removal and reconciliation. That fills us with hope. Now, I, at this point, Shades, now, I hope, I hope that we can see God's wrath, it doesn't destroy faith, hope, and love. No, it leads us to faith. It fills us with hope because it is ultimately rooted in His love. The righteous wrath of God is ultimately rooted in His holy love. God is love. That's true. Scripture tells us that. 1 John chapter 5, God is love. It never says the opposite. It never says God is wrath. Because His love and His wrath are not the same. His love is who He is. In other words, rewind the clock as far as you want to go back into eternity past and you will still encounter the triune God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect love relationship with one another. God is love eternally. He is not wrath eternally. Rewind the clock to then. No wrath. Because His wrath is a response of his holy love to sin. His wrath is a response of his holy love to sin. In other words, if there never was sin, God never would have wrath. That'd be 
because there is sin in his holiness, in his, his, his holiness that will uphold what is right and true and good, in his love that will not tolerate death or destruction to the creation that he loves or to his children, in his holy love, he responds to sin and wrath. Not wrath like ours. Not, not a flying off the handle. He's not throwing a temper tantrum. No, his wrath is righteous, meaning it's right, it's measured, it's just. It is the just response to sin. It's his loving response to remove sin and death from his children and his creation. I do this as a parent because I love my children. I remove that which brings destruction into their lives. Dangerous situations. Harmful people. Barney the purple dinosaur. Like anything, I think, that will bring destruction into their lives, I remove it. How much more so our perfect Father who loves us with a perfect, holy love. If He did not love the world, He would leave it as it is. But He has aimed to redeem all things through removal and reconciliation. His wrath will remove all that brings sin and death. And yes, right here at our close, okay? Right here to close, I do want to own up to the fact that that brings into view a very difficult truth. Okay, his wrath will remove all that brings sin and death, and yes, that includes those who refuse to repent and trust in him. Which is not his will, his desire for anyone. Second Peter 3 9 says that the Lord does not wish, does not will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Ezekiel 33 tells us that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And neither do we. We, along with Paul, weep in Romans 9 over the lost. We long for them to come to to salvation. Through that narrow lens of looking at each individual person, God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked and neither do we. But through the wider lens, through backing up and seeing Him remove all that brings death and destruction to creation. God does rejoice in that, and so do we. Through the narrow lens, we are sorrowful and we weep. Through the wider lens, we rejoice. We are a people who are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We cry tears of both kinds over the wrath of God. Sorrow, and yet also joy in His redemption of all things. Because it's ultimately good news that sin and death will be removed. And after the removal of all of those things, all who are left who trust in Christ along with all of creation will be perfectly reconciled to God. That's the declaration of Colossians 1.20. Through Christ, God will reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. This, shades, is the ultimate good news of the gospel. Yes, there is wrath, but it's like water cleans and it cleans away it's aimed at redemption through removal and reconciliation through the wider lens of god gomer and the gospel the wrath of god comes into full focus as a part of the good news not destroying faith hope and love but leading us to faith filling us with hope because it is rooted in his love amen